This message is from the Axis Church, a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. For more information about Jesus or the Axis Vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. Happy Easter. Today, I have the high honor of telling you all about the one who died but who didn't stay dead, and that's Jesus. And today, all around the world, people are celebrating, at least acknowledging that Jesus Christ lived, and then he died, and that he beat death. Jesus Christ is the greatest person to ever walk the face of this earth that we call home. Jesus is the most important and significant person in all of human history. Our history itself is divided into two parts because of his life. Our calendars are determined by his life, death, and resurrection. The Holy Bible, the Bible that that tells us about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished is the best-selling book ever. There's been more than five billion copies of the Bible sold worldwide. More songs have been sung about Jesus and more books written about Jesus and more paintings painted of Jesus than any other individual in ever throughout the history of the world. And even after 2,000 years, everyone in this room knows something about Jesus. I don't know if there's another figure that we can all know something of that's 2,000 years old. This unites us in some way. So what's so special and unique about Jesus? Well, he performed a lot of miracles, and he was a respected teacher. He claimed to be from God, but what truly separates Jesus is that he claimed not only to be from God, but to be of God, to be God. And this is what eventually got him killed. Weeks before his death, Jesus says this in John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who who lives and believes in me shall never die. But then Jesus died. Jesus died. And it's a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross approximately 2,000 years ago. Christians and non-Christians hold this to be true. It's not myth. It's not fantasy. It's fact. Jesus healed thousands of people. He fed thousands of people. He showed compassion to people that you and I would not show compassion towards. He served so many through his life. Yet in spite of all this, he was unjustly arrested. He was brutally beaten. He was ridiculously mocked. Jesus was scorned. He was despised. He was rejected. He was disdained and belittled, reviled, and ultimately refused by mankind. Yet there was nothing that he could or would change about it. It was necessary for him to go through all the suffering that he went through, every single bit of it. It was all a part of his mission. He was born to suffer. He was born to die. Jesus was sent on a mission to live perfectly, to suffer immensely, and to die. So he dies. Let's say he dies on the Friday And let's say Saturday morning, try to imagine this along with me. Imagine 
that the disciples slept very little last night after all that they saw Jesus endure. I highly doubt that Mary, his mother, rested at all. It's daybreak. I imagine the Roman guards are in place and they're protecting the tomb of Jesus. Perhaps a, a couple of disciples randomly visit the tomb throughout the day, but Mary finds it so hard to ever leave the tomb of her son. The disciples are, are shocked. They're crushed. They hear of Judas's suicide hanging, and they have mixed emotions over that. The lives of the disciples were so oriented entirely around Jesus, but now he's dead. What does normal life look like? Perhaps the Roman guards, they begin to wonder why they have to be stationed at the tomb of Jesus. There seems to be so little, uh, uh, so, so few people interested at all. There's certainly no riots. All is relatively peaceful, much more peaceful than what it was 24, 24 hours ago. It's lunchtime. Perhaps a couple of disciples go gather for a meal together. Others simply can't eat. They're just too distraught. They're too, too emotionally tormented and troubled. Maybe a couple of the disciples go fishing for the afternoon. All day long, Pilate, Pilate's eyes are glazed over. He seems so absent. His wife, who had dreams about Jesus being unique and special, she hasn't even come out of her room at all today. Caiaphas, the high priest, he's relieved. Religion has been saved. He can rest easy. He's now more popular than ever. The free to notorious criminal, Barabbas, he's already raped and robbed and stolen. But the Pharisees don't seem to care. At least Jesus is dead. And seemingly no one is concerned, who just yesterday screamed, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. After all, Jesus is finally dead. Hundreds are helping around the city in the cleanup effort after the bizarre storm and the earthquake that happened late yesterday. The religious leaders are all working together to piece and stitch the veil back together. The veil was strangely torn from top to bottom, inconceivable to think about, of, of any earthly force that could tear the 30-foot by 60-foot veil. It was four inches thick of so many different types of cloth weaved together, woven together. They're perplexed as they work to sew this and repair this veil. Here, symbolically, they're trying to save their religion, that that Jesus character threatened but now he's dead. Religion is safe. Religion is alive again. We can move on. All the disciples and followers of Jesus now have to face the music. The reality is the disciples were wrong. And all the haters for three and a half years now, they're right after all. Satan has won and his boys are partying. Evil wins and good loses. Darkness wins and light loses. The serpent has crushed the sun. Jesus has been defeated. Yet, in the midst of all of this, God the Father has never been more glorious 
or more satisfied with himself or with his creation and recreation plan. His redemptive story is rolling on just as the way that he wrote it before mankind ever breathed. God awaits the reconciliation of not only himself and his son, but all his sons and daughters that his son Jesus is in the middle of winning and redeeming and adopting as he sits in the grave. He awaits the resurrection of his son and the rebirthing and the adopting of all of his children. The Bible tells us that Jesus wasn't just a good man dying a horrific death, but the Bible goes on to explain that there was magnificent purpose in his death and that it was all according to plan. You and I were, were all created to be in a very significant and meaningful and real relationship with God. Every single one of us have this in common. But this, this relationship requires us to be without sin. It requires you to be perfect. It requires me to be perfect. Perfect meaning perfect. And here we find ourselves disqualified to be in this relationship. And this is a big problem for us. You see, we're all born sinners. We're sinners by birth and we're sinners by choice. If we're honest, we can't help but sin. It comes effortlessly. It comes easy. Our sin has brought about a great divide that's impossible for any of us to bridge this great chasm. We're separated from God and we are his enemies because of our sin. You see, God is holy and God is just and he's so holy and he's so just that he can't just overlook sin. He has to deal with it. It's an offense against him. All of our sin is ultimately not against me, against you, if I offend you in some way. Ultimately, though, that's, that is there. That transgression is there. Ultimately, even that sin that you've been sinned against and I've sinned is ultimately in the face of God because we bear his image. And we're saying something about him every time that we sin. So he must punish sin. If he doesn't, he ceases to be God because he lets things slide. He no longer becomes perfectly just, and therefore he disqualifies himself as being God. We can't take an attribute of God and place it over others. He has to hold all his characteristics at the same time. Our sin is ultimately against him. And if there was to be any chance of reconciliation, any hope at all of having our relationship with God restored, it would be if he took the initiative. But the good news of the gospel is that God does take the initiative by sending his son to earth. In sending his son into human history, which is what we celebrate at Christmas time, God is telling us, I love you. I'm interested in you. You are special to me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus dying was the only hope, the only sure hope that you and I would ever have. And Jesus even said this in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say A, he says the, I am the way, the truth, and life. And just in case you missed it, no one gets to the Father except through me. I'm the only way to God. Jesus lived perfectly 
without sin for you and died on the cross as your substitute in order to love you and forgive you and to redeem you. 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He lived perfectly and he died as your substitute to forgive you of your sin and to kill your death and to stop your funeral and bring you back to life, back into friendship and fellowship and friendship with God. The cross is what you deserve. The cross is what I deserve. The grave is what we deserve. Yet Jesus endured both of these as us and for us if we would simply believe and hope in him. Jesus endured all the wrath, every bit of it. God's wrath is finished. It was poured upon Jesus in his suffering, in his beatings, and on the cross. So much wrath was poured out on God that there's no wrath for those who believe in him. None. Romans 8.1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. There's no more shame. There's no more condemnation. There's no more guilt. Jesus, that's, that's what he was doing in receiving the beating that he took and dying the death on the cross that he took. He was absorbing the wrath and the punishment and the condemnation. It's not yours anymore. Have you ever heard the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that only happened one time so far in human history, and he volunteered for it. And he did it for you. He took it upon himself to be fully responsible for you. He didn't leave it up to somebody else. He certainly didn't leave it up to us to be good enough or to work hard enough or to try harder. He did all the work that was necessary. You see, it was on the cross that he absorbed the wrath of God that was towards our sin and where we receive his righteousness, his perfection, this is our justification. This is what theologians consider to be the great exchange. His righteousness for our sin, our sin for his righteousness. We are now justified, just as if I've never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed. Perfect record because God sees Jesus and his finished work and not myself and my sin. And the same can be for you if you by faith look to him as your Lord and Savior today. All this is true because of his sacrificial death in our place, but also because this death wasn't the end of Jesus. The movement that Jesus began and continues to this day is what it is because of what happened after his death. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Notice it doesn't just say Jesus, but the body, because he was clearly dead. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and, and bowed their faces to the ground, the two men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. R remember how he told you? Let's see. While he was still in Galilee, he told this to you, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day arise. And they remembered his words. 
And they, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11, that speaking of the disciples, Judas being absent, of course, and then to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, a fairy tale. The disciples didn't believe it, like throwing jello on a wall. No, there's no way. And by the way, if you're going to write a religion and you're going to make something up, you're not going to include stuff like that. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. The grave could not hold Jesus back from life. All of your sin and all of my sin placed on Jesus could not hold Jesus back from life. Satan's power fell so short from holding Jesus back from life. Death's grip was simply too weak to keep Jesus down from life. His life was not taken. His life was given. He said he lays down his life and he'll pick it back up again. No one takes his life from him. He's the boss of his life. Even in dying, he was still winning and in control. In three days, three short days, part of Friday, all of Saturday, part of Sunday, if you will, our Savior arose from the grave announcing victory. Jesus was simply too powerful, too wonderful, too perfect, too strong, too magnificent, too mighty, and too glorious to be hailed by death or the prince of death. We celebrate Easter not because Jesus was victorious in his resurrection, but also because his victory is over death is our victory over death too. This is why we celebrate Easter. This is why we get crazy and crunk on Easter is because it's our Easter too. It's a picture of our resurrection too. He's alive. Jesus is alive. Death and sin and Satan are ultimately destroyed. They're dead and they're finished at the death of Jesus. But Jesus is not dead in the death of Jesus. The resurrection was God's way of stamping all across human history so that you could not miss it. Paid in full accomplished. It is finished, sufficient. The resurrection was God's way of saying that Jesus is to be taken seriously. And my friends, it's not a waste of time to give him any mental thought whatsoever. Give him your attention. The resurrection says he deserves your attention. If Jesus rose from the dead, then I believe you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't raise from the dead, if he didn't beat death, why consider anything? Why worry yourself with him at all? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like his teaching or you can stomach what he said or did. The issue comes down on whether or not he actually rose from the grave. Secular Newsweek magazine says that there is no other historical explanation for the resurrection than it actually took place. Historically speaking. You must account for the hundreds of people that see Jesus after his resurrection. People don't have group hallucinations. Those things don't happen. 
Why did thousands of Jews and Greeks totally change their worldview in a single day and believe in Jesus? Why do the disciples all die martyrs' death except one who was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, that being John? Why do they all willingly suffer and die, be crucified upside down, be burned alive, be decapitated? Why do the disciples endure these things when the day after his death, they run in fear and they deny him. Even before he died, Peter denying Jesus three times. Coward. How does he, how does he become bold enough to preach the gospel to the Pharisees telling them they killed God? How does that happen unless he saw something? He had to see something that changed everything, that made a lion out of a kitty cat. Something happened. He saw Jesus. He truly saw the risen Lord. We must account for this sort of behavior. As we, as we read this in history, we must reconcile how this can be true. We can't just say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection. I would say that's not fair. You must come up with a historically possible alternate explanation for the birth of the Christian church, and I don't think you can find one. Well, I just don't believe it. Then you're no longer doing history. You're exercising radical faith. You're taking a leap of faith. You're, you're desperately holding on to something. You're desperately holding on to, against the evidence, to your European enlightenment faith, which is prejudiced towards anything supernatural or miraculous. Please see what you're doing. Admit it. You don't have to admit it to me. Admit it to yourself. You're desperately leaping against the evidence by faith to stay away from the certainty that can make you able to overcome the world. My friends, Jesus is alive. And during his perfect life, he overcame sin. On Friday, he overcame the penalty of sin, enduring God's wrath for us on the cross. On Sunday, he rose, overcoming death, giving us life, eternal life. God turned the death of Jesus into life for him and all who would have faith and belief in Jesus Christ as Lord. God's salvation has not come on the basis of merit, of pedigree, of race, of class, of skin color, of gender, or pecking order. The gospel says that all are bad and Jesus is perfect and good. The gospel says that through Jesus, the bad become perfect, the dead become alive, the orphan is adopted, the enemies are made sons and daughters. This is the good news of the gospel. The gospel isn't that the good are in and the bad are out. The gospel is the humble are in and the proud are out. The gospel isn't go do. The gospel says Jesus has done what is needed. The gospel isn't you give God a perfect record. The gospel is God gives you a perfect record through the finished work of Jesus Christ, his son. The gospel is not your past that's the determining factor of your relationship with God, but it's the past and history of Christ and his perfect record that results in your salvation. Jesus is savior. He has prepared the way. So how do you get into Christ? How can he become your Lord and savior? You believe this to be true. You believe that he's God and that he did all that was necessary to save you. You don't have to have everything figured out. You just have to have that much figured out. Everyone in this room will at some time today leave this building 
and you will all, including myself, be exercising faith in something. I pray that it's faith and belief in Jesus and his finished work for you and not in something else. My prayer has been leading up to the day that we would all believe. May we all see Jesus for who he is. May we all hope in him. May we all see that anyone can get in on this, that you don't have to clean up before you have hope. You just have to show up and say, I'm dirty and I'm a sinner and he'll receive you and restore you. He lives, y'all. Our Savior lives. We're following the risen King. Let's celebrate Jesus. He's not, he's not dead. Jesus is God and Jesus is alive. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi is dead and you can visit their tombs, but Jesus is alive. And you can visit his tomb, but unlike these other religious revolutionaries, his tomb is famous for what's not there. Because he isn't there, he is alive. And all who hope in him have the same thing to look forward to, and that's life. That's death no longer being something to be feared. Death becomes like your car. It takes you where you want to go. This is the hope that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. Jacob, come lead us in communion. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this being true. Thank you for the hope that we do have in you. Lord, thank you for doing the work necessary to save us and redeem us. God, give every person in this room saving faith and belief in you. Save people today, Jesus. May they see you for who you really are and what you've done for them. Would it, would it land today like it's never landed before? Would it matter today like it's never mattered before? Lord, give us a reason to baptize next Sunday. Lord, save people today. Change people today. Allow the, the Christians in this room who have had this news become mundane, Lord, allow it to stir their affections in you to a level that they've never experienced it before. And would you help keep it there, Jesus? God, help our affections stay consistently and solely upon you. God, do your thing. In Jesus' name, amen.